0: When I go to work, I, uh, I always dress as a pirate. That's how I get ready in the morning. Put on my little pirate hat,
1: remove my leg, and replace it with wood. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so there's the technology to reattach it at the end of the day, huh? Of course. Alien technology. Yeah. They landed here.
0: Welcome to Aliens Land Here, Season 2, Episode 4. Uh, This time, I think we're going to talk a lot about the Oculus Connect keynote. Every year, Oculus does an event called uh, Oculus Connect, where they get together a bunch of VR developers and have a bunch of sessions in sort of a similar vein to Google I.O. or WWDC or Microsoft Build or all of those other big developer platform conferences. The difference being that uh, the... The VR one tends to be much less what's going on right now and much more what can be done in the future or what they hope to be done in the future. Every year I think about going and every year I don't end up going, even though I do have kind of an interest in VR. Uh, Where's it located? Bay Area, basically. This year I thought that the the overall keynote was fluffy until they got to Michael Abrash. I was just a little bit annoyed by their style this year.
1: It seemed to be divided into two very distinct parts. The first part was for the quest, which was announced there at the conference. And then the second part was Michael Abrash talking about what was going to happen within the next five years.
0: The part in the beginning where they were talking about the quest did have some interesting stuff there. So the quest is what their previous uh, Santa Cruz demo with the Inside Out tracking turned into. Uh, A couple of years ago, they did their initial demonstrations of uh, their Santa Cruz with the inside-out tracking, and this year they're finally ready to announce it as being an actual product. And the idea here is to have a completely self-contained VR system where you don't need a PC, you don't need a phone, but you still have a lot of the things that are needed to have some really good VR immersion like the six degrees of freedom and, uh, to a lesser extent, hand tracking. And so they, they did this announcement. The interesting thing, and it was brought up in uh, the Carmack keynote, is that uh, they, they have another product called the, the Go, which is sort of just a, another standalone headset without six degrees of freedom that was sort of like a little step beyond the Gear VR that they originally did with the, pho- uh, the Samsung phones. The interesting thing there is that the Quest was actually started
1: before the work on the Go was started. It reminds me of how the uh iPad was started before the iPhone. Yeah. But they decided to work on the iPhone first. Yeah. And I mean, I can understand that in part because the really nice thing about the Go is that it's a very cheap product, not, you know, not cheap as in chintzy, but you know, cheap as affordable. And it's a really good gateway to VR in general. Well, that price point is a really good
0: gateway to VR in general. But I would argue that I don't think that they really should have even released it. I think that they should have gone directly to the Quest for mobile. And that would have reduced the player base. But I think that the six degrees of freedom is important enough that no VR headset should be really without it.
1: I guess the question here is when it comes to people going around with the headsets that they own and showing them to other people, is it more likely that somebody who puts on a quest is going to then immediately shell down the $400 to buy a quest? Or somebody, you know, um, somebody getting a go, putting that on their head, will they be more likely to shell out the smaller $200 amount for it? That's true. From a business perspective
0: it probably does make more sense to have the $200 go, but from a people being happy with VR perspective, because there's a good number of people that would try something without the six degrees of freedom, decide they don't like VR,
1: and then never try it again. I mean, I could see that with my experience with the Gear VR. Right. One thing of note that uh, Carmack had said within his keynote was he said that 80% of people who... um, have the go were first-time VR people. Oh, I thought that he was talking about 80%
0: were people that just do media, but he also is also 80% were first-time VR.
1: Check we'll have that. to double-check that, <laughs> yeah. Which I had taken that to mean that, okay, the reason for even putting out the go is the fact that uh, it is $200 is a magical price point where a whole lot more people will try it out. The $200 pr- price point becomes... It becomes within spitting
0: range of an impulse purchase for someone who is relatively affluent. Sure. Whereas $400 is generally someone who's probably thought about it for a bit.
1: And you had said earlier that uh, the big fear is somebody will try a Go or a Gear VR, put it on once, and then never try VR ever again. On the other hand maybe there's the possibility that someone will end up getting a go and then be excited about what's possible in the future. I'm not entirely convinced that's the case. Um,
0: As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I've been following the VR stuff since before Oculus was even founded. And uh, when they did the initial Kickstarter for the dev kit, I got one of those. And when I showed it to people, most of the people thought it was cool, but then I never a lot of the people basically never wanted to try it again. And if I was able to convince someone to then try the initial consumer version of the Oculus headset, then they typically understood, oh, yeah, this is way better uh, than the other thing. I could definitely see doing more of this in the future.
1: I mean, yeah, I remember that with the DK1. It's just... Uh... I think a big part of it is having imagination and seeing where it's going.
0: Yeah. And that, that is a, a big problem with a lot of people is they have they have no imagination. They need to be shown. <laughs> and I mean, even people that think they have an imagination and they try to imagine it, it's it's still pretty different when you actually try something compared to when you imagine. So then they, they have a little bit of platform update stuff. Most of it like sort of sort of felt like repetitive They had the the lady that was spinning around all the time, and they didn't say actually a lot. Um, Is that sort of the impression that you got?
1: Uh, In some ways. I mean, the uh, lady spinning around is trying to sell people on the quest, which, I mean, I understand that uh, when you end up announcing an actual product at a developer's keynote, you have to balance what's targeted at developers compared to what's targeting at potential customers.
0: Yeah. And I can definitely understand that. But even if, even with potential customers, like they, they want to see at least some sort of indication of what it looks like. Um, and they didn't really do that aside from like some sort of sideways glances at the tennis game that they're demonstrating like you can see reflect you can see it in the in the little lens that they had up with, when they were doing the full device there um <laughs> and they and, it, and the weird thing is they have like other stuff that works that they could have shown but
1: they didn't that whole video with the kids from the 1980s going whoa at different yeah they needed Keanu Reeves in there in order for that to work
0: <laughs> oh it doesn't work without him they should just scrap the commercial unless they can get Keanu Reeves in it. <laughs>
1: also it didn't show any actual game footage again you would think if anything that if they were going to do an ad with this that they would incorporate it with the star wars game yeah they showed a bit of the star wars game but not a whole lot but i mean if anything that's more compelling after all uh you can go to best buy right now and they sell a vr headset that is specifically for playing a star wars game they do which what what is that lenovo star wars jedi challenges ar headset it's an ar one not a vr one yeah i had recalled going to best buy and seeing a uh seeing a headset where for 200 dollars you could basically play a one star wars game
0: oh so that is an ar thing well one that looks pretty awful <laughs> <laughs> yeah it looks like they they have like a little hollow projection thing that shows up in
1: your living room. So yeah, A- AR definitely. Oh man, I really wish they didn't sell this. I'm going to Best Buy and I'm seeing something that was being sold for $200 where you're basically playing one Star Wars game. Presumably some people bought it. Uh, I'm guessing. <laughs> I mean, it had it had floor space for it. Okay. I mean, you're going to have the Quest, which yes, it's going to be $400, but you have something that's very strong IP. Yeah. Why would you not integrate this into your initial um, advertising campaign? My guess is that it's
0: still early enough that they're afraid to. Something could go wrong. They have a bad feeling about that. <laughs> so it's it's worth talking a little bit more about the role that the quest fills in sort of the the ecosystem and how it compares to uh, the other currently available op- offerings, in particular how it will compare against uh the existing rift that it, since it now has aside from the processing power all of the rift's features um and the question is how important the processing power is going to be the quest is unfortunately going to have a qualcomm snapdragon 835 processor which while it's significantly more powerful than their oculus go It isn't even the current state-of-the-art, which is the 845, and then I guess the 855 will be released before the headset comes out. So it'll be basically two generations behind, even before the headset comes
1: out. Now, there's one of two things that I'm thinking here. Either one is that they don't think that the processing power is as important as other things, such as six degrees of freedom and other kinds of things that they end up doing within the headset. The second thing that I'm thinking is that um, in the Carmack keynote, he was talking about Qualcomm having um, some dedicated chip space for doing um, some kind of operation. I thought it was a a chromatic abrasion-related thing. That he was talking about Qualcomm having... Do we want to take a
0: step back and describe what uh, chromatic abrasion is?
1: Yeah. So...
0: Chromatic abrasion is an artifact that shows up uh, when you have a lens that... The lens is curved, and when you have light that passes through a lens the, or, or any sort of medium, uh, the different frequencies of light bend at different amounts. And so as the red, green, and blue pixels emit their light and it goes through the lens, uh, the location on your eye will shift a little bit, depending on the frequency of the light that's going through it. And this is most noticeable near the edges where there's the, the most curvature. And so the chromatic abrasion is an effect where uh, you'll see the some color separation in the images near the edges of the image. So it looks sort of like there's, in, instead of one image of correct color, there's three images, one red, one green, one blue. And the correction for chromatic abrasion is basically, well, we know that due to this lens there is going to be uh, this effect. So what we can do is shift the location that the the intensity values of the pixels we're displaying, such that it looks
1: correct when it ends up hitting your eye. Due to chromatic abrasion, it's uh, entirely possible that Qualcomm ended up doing a custom version of their 835. I really doubt it. In the Carmack talk, I believe he said that the
0: Hardware existed to do it already, but it wasn't enabled, and he just had to basically go into some sort of hidden settings to enable it for for um, automatically taking care of this. Oh, okay. It didn't end up having any sort of uh, performance problems, but it had a very slight, like a 2% battery
1: hit. So what do you think um, ultimately their rationale is for doing an A thirty five? I think it's basically cost. They want to hit the $400 price point,
0: uh, any phones currently that are using the 845 none of them are $400 but it is pretty disappointing it would be really nice if they could make a deal with Apple and use an A12 because <laughs> that, that, that would pretty much blow away processing wise anything that Qualcomm has to offer
1: I think we'd be more likely to see an Apple and Facebook merger first <laughs> yeah that's never happening let's
0: step back to the Quest's uh, inside out tracking with previous VR headsets and there are some inside out tracking headsets that like are done by windows and whatnot so this is not the first headset that does it but the other more popular headsets like the Rift and the Vive have an external tracking mechanism the Vive has these uh things that they're they're called um lighthouses and they just basically emit light they're not actually sensors and uh, the headset is a thing that uh, figures out where you are based off of the emissions from these lighthouses and then the oculus has a different method that you, ha- you have a set of cameras that are around the room and then little lights on the headset itself uh that end up doing the tracking and what it, the way inside out tracking works is there's computer vision software on the headset itself that does that does things like look for corners or features um, I don't know if they're using SIFT features, but that would be my guess, since that seems to be where there's been the most research. Um, SIFT features are scale invariant uh, finite transform, I believe. It uses these to sort of build a map of the world. And, it, and so after it's built this map of the world, it can position the headset in it uh, without having to rely on doing any sort of external setup. And the advantage here is you can take the thing wherever you want after probably a quick walk around the room. Uh, You can then use it and way less annoying than having to set up and then calibrate your external sensors. So I have both a Vive and a Rift CV1 and uh, I have, I'm lucky enough to have a space uh, in my office. I've kind of a big office because I work from home uh, that I can set it up. these cameras up, but it's still really annoying because if they get bumped, which does happen and I have to go through the, the setup and the guardian process again and whatnot. Uh, So it's really, it would
1: be really nice to not have to deal with any of that. Just to clarify, the quest is only using camera sensors. It's not actually projecting anything like infrared similar to the, I actually don't know if it's projecting something or not. And that sort of
0: makes me wonder if, it will work in the dark or not, um, since if it's not projecting anything and it just uses the ambient light, then it would not work in the dark, which seems like a pretty major downside to me.
1: Now, um, conversely, um, if it's really light outside, would there still be issues with infrared, like using that within a light environment? That That is a problem with infrared. I know
0: that it has trouble
1: sort of outdoors.
0: I don't think that that's going to be that big of a common use case. I guess with the Quest, it might be because you can take it sort of anywhere.
1: Yeah, and they are kind of touting that.
0: Yeah, so uh, previously, the big thing with VR was uh, room scale VR, which uh, does sort of help immersion pretty immensely uh, when you can walk around your space in VR. And they were touting uh, uh, arena scale VR, where they have a, a thing set up at Oculus Connect where There's a 4,000 square foot play space that you can sort of walk around in there. And that does seem even more compelling since then you could do stuff like physically run around. Um, And I think the demo that they have is like a paintball simulation kind of thing.
1: (laughs) I don't know if uh, I'd be kind of nervous doing that, that I'd end up running into a wall. Well, first you set up their little guardian system. The way that this
0: works previously, uh, I've set it up with uh, both of Vive, and they don't call it Guardian, I don't think, but um, and Oculus, is you take a controller and you walk around the room that you're going to play in, and it determines where the boundaries of your play space are. So when you're in VR, when you get to... The near the edge of the wall it does like it puts up a little grid like in star trek where they're on the holodeck and they like throw something <laughs> against the wall and it does that little little uh, glitchy grid kind of thing it's actually mm-hmm. very similar when you get close to a, a wall and and that works pretty well though I, I guess if you're running you might have a little bit more trouble stopping before you actually run into something
1: now is uh, the interface for that on a game basis or is it on a um like a system basis
0: it's in a it's on a system level it's something you set up when you set up the device itself um and that's one of the things like i said that's annoying about having the external sensors since every time that you want to change where you're playing uh you have to reset up all that stuff so it's usually with rift and vive once you set up your space you don't change it and that's that is definitely a major disadvantage to and that's one of the major reasons that I'm actually planning on getting a quest is I can go and take it downstairs uh, and have the kids use it in the family room without having to worry about any sort of PC setup and not having to worry about it being different than my normal office space uh, or anything like that.
1: Um, going back to the whole thing about um, being able to use it in the dark, um, how much of this detection is based off of accelerometer? My guess is it's going to be sort of similar
0: to how they have it in the Vive and the Rift, where the primary method of detection of your location is done via the cameras, sensors, whatever, and then sudden movements are taken care of by the accelerometer. Part of the way that they're able to have a rapid update of where your head location is is using the accelerometer accelerometers that are in the device device. Uh, that sort of interpolates between the ground truth uh, fixings of using the sensors.
1: Because I uh, noticed in the keynote that um, Hugo Barra was saying that uh, it was being updated uh, at a rate of one millisecond. Right. And there's almost certainly not the case that they're
0: having the a thousand frames per second camera updates.
1: Yeah. That's where my mind was going that that's a whole lot of processing in the course of a millisecond right it's probably around t- 20 to
0: 60 frames per second and then um interpolation done with the accelerometer yeah that makes a whole lot more sense so do we want to talk about like sort of worky kinds of applications yeah i think so also during the presentation they were trying to talk about some less game oriented uses of the the headsets and they we're a little bit less successful
1: in doing that. but I didn't find the telecommuting part compelling until the uh, Abrash keynote. There was a part at the end where he was showing uh, basically how realistic you can get virtual humans to be. Now, uh, that particular piece of software isn't ready, so you're kind of forced to use your imagination to see what it's going to be like in two years or three years or whatnot right
0: so the 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 thing that mark is referring to here is uh, michael rush who is uh, oculus's chief scientist so he does a lot of sort of uh, researchy things in vr showed a video that had on one side a person talking and on the other side a reconstructed model of that person talking and it was fairly difficult to determine which one was the 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 fake person if you weren't
1: trying if you weren't paying very much attention something like that i find a whole lot more compelling than the kind of cartoony avatars and whatnot that they're selling on their existing platform question is is
0: this better than just having a video chat and from my experiences in vr it, it's definitely much more personal more normal feeling to interact uh in VR than it is via a video chat. The problem is that you're never going to have, well, not never. You're not going to have good adoption. So this can't work unless everyone is doing it. And there's
1: no way you can get everyone in the remote office to be wearing a headset all day. It could be done. I mean, you could just have it where the people who have the VR headsets um, have the immersive environment. And then uh, everybody else who's using a computer will show up kind of on a screen within the uh, quote-unquote metaverse. And then the people who are using a computer will be able to kind of peer in on the uh, the lobby or whatnot where people are meeting. Yeah, you could, you could co- sort of do that. I, I think that in order
0: for this to work, it has to be a sort of remote-first environment similar to how the Stack Overflow company is set up. And Stack Overflow currently has um, both remote and actual in-office employees, but they are set up as a remote first uh, company. So anytime that there is a meeting, it's part of their policy that it's done via video chat. And so this removes the problem of some employees basically feeling excluded and distant uh, because everyone is treated that way every time they have a meeting, it's it's done via video chat, uh, even if they're sitting right next to each other, and uh, it it really it really helps integrate the remote employees a lot better. If if they go to a bar, they even set up a uh, a video chat there, and so the remote employee will go and grab a drink on their own from their kitchen or whatever, and uh, hang
1: out with with other employees. See, I mean, I find that decently compelling. Although the big thing that they were trying to sell within this keynote is if VR will ever allow for people to telecommute, whereas they're not able to right now. Similarly to how all
0: Stack Overflow interactions are, need to be remote first, this, if a company is to work going to work like this, they, all, they have to be sort of VR first in that you don't have any interactions with other employees unless you're wearing the headset. And I think that's sort of the only way it could work well.
1: Now, the question is, do you foresee a whole lot of companies trying to dive in on that approach within the next three to five years? No, (laughs)
0: definitely not. The other thing having to do with uh, working in VR is sort of the virtual desktop thing. And, you can set up something that's reasonably compelling there by having essentially positioning monitors all around you uh, to have a, a a workspace that's bigger and expansive than you would otherwise have. Uh, there's a little bit of a problem there when you're actually trying to go and work from a comfort perspective. And when I tried doing a virtual desktop thing, uh, that was one of the major things that I ran into
1: that and not wanting to work while in Windows. See, uh, for me, the big barrier I could see with doing any kind of work like that on a virtual desktop is just the resolution of the display. Yeah. So
0: the pixels per inch that you're going to get with a viewer headset is going to be much lower than if you're just sort of staring at something in front of you because it has to cover a much wider field of view uh, with roughly the same number of pixels.
1: For me to even try it they would have to go to a 4K by 4K per eye display. Problem for me with trying it is mostly the OS
0: and having something on my head. It does work very well for getting you to focus on something. Um, It's amazing how distracting the regular world is. And you don't sort of realize it until you're sitting there in VR focused on something because it is way easier to stay focused on something when it's all of the
1: thing that you're looking at. See, it's kind of hilarious that you say that because in the demonstration that they showed there, they showed a person, you know, with a VR headset. Um, sitting in front of a ver- in front of their computer typing, mm-hmm. and then they end up getting a notification that shows immediately above their computer. And I'm thinking this is way more distracting mm-hmm. than anything that's on a computer itself. So. I feel like they were ineffective in showing how VR can make you more productive by having a whole bunch of uh, interruptions and pop-ups happening within their demo.
0: Yeah, they didn't seem to be playing to VR's strengths in the, that case. They, they tried to make it too much like a regular office, and in instead of playing to what VR is good at, and that is uh, virtualizing things that are inconvenient to position where you would want them positioned in real life, but can't do to physical constraints, like having a curved monitor like in your upper area that you sometimes look at for particular documentation while doing your main work a little bit below, having like a giant long uh, scrolling uh, piece of text. Um, I, I know that when I'm coding, I like having a large vertical field of view, but that's sort of impractical to always have set up in real life and VR could work pretty well there. Um, but they didn't show anything like that. They had this tiny little screen window and this then this keyboard
1: below it and all sorts of office-looking things around it. The one area that I think they actually did a really good job at was uh, showing modeling because uh, the people who are doing any kind of 3D modeling, it actually seems to be way more effective creating a model within a 3D space than uh, being on a monitor. Yeah, that's... That is definitely the case.
0: And from what I've played with, with um, like Quill and Oculus Medium and Tilt Brush, uh, which is Google's VR drawing, uh, it's I am not a very good artist, but the things that I was able to create while in VR looked way better than anything I'm actually able to draw just because I have the ability to walk around it and go, oh, this doesn't look right.
1: See, now that's the kind of stuff I want to see for next year's keynote. Is if they can expand into other sort of niche fields where the application of what they're doing is way better within VR, I think that's more compelling. Yeah, I can certainly see some
0: like home design, home decor stuff working really well there, particularly with the Quest. And because it can already basically it because it has to create a map of the world, right? So in creating the map of the world, it's effectively measuring the dimensions of your your play space or your home. And if you go all of the all through your home and map your entire home, well then you have a three D map of your home, which you can then Plug into uh, an architectured home design kind of app and see how different things would look in your home if you did particular renovations, if you bought particular furniture, etc. There's already an IKEA VR app, but that isn't quite the same, especially since they use their own pre done thing and not your actual home. And they also have the AR one, but that's not all in your face. Uh.
1: Yeah, I mean, the AR one is uh, the phone app,
0: right? Yeah, they have the phone app. And they also have a a VR app where you can look at their furniture in VR. But that one doesn't integrate what your home actually looks
1: like. See, I'd like to see more stuff like that. Am I going to pay $400 in order to uh, be able to better preview IKEA stuff within my house? (laughs) Which the answer to that is obviously no. Right. But on the other hand,
0: if you are planning on doing a major home renovation, you can easily spend fifty to to $100,000 doing a home renovation, and making sure that you get that right could be worth spending an extra $400 to be sure about it. See, now that's a good selling point. Um, and And maybe the people that end up buying them are not the people that have their home being done, but the people who are doing the design, and then they show their client on the device.
1: Yeah, now that I actually see... As uh, happening in the future, and I also wonder about, say, uh, for realty, yeah, that uh, I can see, you know, things like uh, Redfin and Zillow, and uh, sites like that taking heavy use of VR. You can sort of do that already with. Um,
0: there's a home scanning and display company called Matterport that does all these virtual reconstructions of homes.
1: The stuff I've seen is very nascent so far. Where it's uh, what I've seen is where you have the uh, VR 360 pictures. You end up pressing an arrow to kind of go in a direction, rather than actually being within a real bona fide 3D model of the house. If you look at some of the some of the Matterport uh,
0: models, they sometimes do actually have an option to do a free roaming camera, and then, then you can see that they did reconstruct a model of the house, and you can just sort of uh, go through it all together. Um, The annoying thing about Matterport, though, is that you don't really, one, it requires a very expensive uh, equipment to actually do the house scan. Two, when you buy their services, you you have to have your home hosted on their servers and you pay like some giant amount of money per uh, model that's done. Um, And so it's just not really practical for someone who wants a, a regular scan of their house
1: Yeah, that's fair. Although I could see that changing quite readily within the future, especially with, uh, you know, with companies like Google, you know, doing, um, their efforts with 360 degree cameras, Right, I can see that changing. Yeah.
0: So I did a little bit of experimentation on home scanning where I set up a, um, basically a little laser range finder to do, uh, to to get basically a point cloud of a room. And um, the plan was then to mix it with video that's taken from the same perspective. But now that the headsets are a thing, I'm not sure that I want to continue down that path. Uh, I'm not entirely sure about if the cameras can actually get color data or what sort of actual image that they receive, Um, but if they can do something about the texturing of the environment that they're mapping, then it would definitely be something that I would look into for doing that sort of mapping instead of a a custom device that with a sensor fusion, with a camera and a laser rangefinder.
1: I could also see this being useful for things like hotels as well. You know, getting a feel for what your room's going to be like. I could see it for cruise ships. Yeah. I, I could see it for basically any kind of business where, you're going to travel somewhere and uh, want to see what the room is like ahead of time. Yeah. Another sort
0: of non game application I can think of is uh, doing something that requires a lot of 3d thinking, such as perhaps a uh, something to do with mechanical engineering, putting together a device, that kind of
1: thing. So you're thinking along the lines of CAD. Well, not just CAD, but
0: like when you're in VR and you, you create your volume of stuff, you can then apply physics to it and see if the mechanics work out the way you expect. So it it could help with rapid iteration of uh, hardware prototyping.
1: You were also saying that this would be useful for teaching? I think that uh,
0: there's some parts of some classes where it becomes more obvious about what you're looking at if it's shown in 3D like, the way that uh, molecules are constructed or whatnot. Uh, in classes today, they have all of those little uh, round toys with the with the little sticks, then you put together the molecule. Um, and you can do something sort of similar, uh, except that if you do it in VR, you can then show a simulation of like how these two molecules would then uh, interact if they would form sort of like a lattice structure, uh, stuff like that. Because you can sort of apply the actual learnings in science to it uh, and do better experimentation and have the student more intuitively understand what goes on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember as a kid, those little sticks with the uh, the little hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms and carbon atoms, and not quite getting the concept of uh, covalent bonds, Mm until you know much much later where I could see VR being able to explain that so much better right and
0: um, physics um, really easy demonstration of the kinematics equations uh, electricity and magnetism showing how the electrons uh, move to fill holes uh, in the shells be much more effective to convey uh, when you're looking at it in 3D VR kind of thing. And also it would keep the students focused because they couldn't go play with a calculator.
1: Well, also I could see mathematics yeah. in some ways. And I mean, pretty much visualizing things like, uh, especially within say calculus mm-hmm. and, you know, understanding the relation between, uh, you know, things like integrals. Right. So
0: I, I, I think it has some good use, use cases there uh, actually getting adoption of it might be difficult
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh i don't see schools spending money right. right away well well part of the problem is that in order to
0: do a lot of the actually good educational stuff you would have to use something that's at least quest level where you could move your head around yeah but the problem is that school funding is such that at best they would be spending go money
1: i guess this leads into what you see happening with generation two items now uh within the keynote What I got from it is that they're going to have basically three different product lines moving forward. That uh, eventually there's going to be a generation two of the Go, the Quest, and the Rift. So the Quest was sort of positioned as
0: the final device in generation one of VR. And that devices that show up after this, they consider sort of generation two of VR. And I think their next major thing is uh, Half Dome, which is sort of the next Rift update, which all I really know about it is that they're probably going to increase the pixels per inch and they're definitely going to increase the field of view.
1: I think what they're doing is they're establishing price points. So what I can foresee happening is that eventually all of the features that are within the quest will eventually go down channel towards the go. So I can yeah. imagine there eventually being a go-to that is, uh, you know... Effectively a quest, yeah. Effectively a quest, yes.
0: Yeah, It's. I, I sort of thought of it like they're going to end up having two mobile models uh, uh, that are sort of positioned like uh, what Apple does when... Apple does nowadays, where the previous high-end model becomes a, a cheaper model. And then they're going to have the Rift, which is sort of just their high-end PC stuff for
1: the more enthusiast market. Say a year or two years down the line, is the Go going to stick around and just become cheaper? I don't know if they're going to rename like what is effectively
0: the Quest to the Go after it becomes cheaper, um, or if they're going to just get rid of the Go name and have two different headsets at different price points or
1: what? I mean, I see there being a lot of potential for them having a $99 headset. Oh yeah. Moving even more down market
0: to mm-hmm. $100 is 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 definitely going to include a
1: lot more people. I hope they don't, but <laughs> they probably <laughs> will. The thing about the Go is um is the Go something that somebody is going to use as a primary gaming console? And uh, I'm inclined to say no. That yeah. it's more of a it's more of a novelty compared to a person having a PS3, PS4, Switch. Right. And one of the things that Carmack pointed out is that
0: roughly 80% of the usage of the Go is non-gaming related. It's consuming media like watching movies or whatever, which is interesting. I suspect a lot of it is in bed watching a movie if you're laying on your back then it doesn't matter as much if your head moves around and it tracks it.
1: Going back, having the Quest as something at a $200 price point, I think is very compelling. Oh, yeah, definitely. Which, you know, someday I see that it's going to be that. Right. That may entirely be why they chose the Snapdragon thirty five, because they anticipate that the chip's going to get a lot cheaper and mm-hmm. they're going to make it uh, make the price of it go down. And I think that the Quest has enough features that it'll get
0: people who were otherwise interested in VR interested in VR. Um, And even for people like me, uh, it's interesting because of the lack of wires completely. So I want to be able to just throw it at my kids and have them be able to use it. Because right now, if my kids go, I want to play with VR, I have to go and boot up my Windows PC, make sure all the cameras are connected and still working, and then launch the application that they want to, play which is usually job simulator um (laughs) sometimes it's minecraft um those and the seth will also play super hot and i think super hot is a really really good demonstration of what vr can be and it's really good that they were able to get it uh onto the quest Uh, are you familiar with that game at all
1: no no i'm
0: not so the way that super hot works is it's a shooter but it plays a little bit like a puzzle game. And the reason that is is because in that game, time only moves when you move. And so if you go and shoot at an enemy and they shoot back, so when you fire the gun, it does real time for a sec, for just a little bit of uh, time. Uh, but mm-hmm. then after that, you it, time stops and it doesn't move until you start moving. So you can see the bullets moving through the air. And you can physically dodge the bullets very Matrix-like. Oh, huh. The graphics are sort of like these basically red men running around. And it's a lot more compelling when you're actually in it because they they feel like glass. So you hit them and they
1: shatter, um, which works well. (laughs) I'm imagining if there were haptic feedback that, what, your head and your hands would shake? (laughs) Uh, Well, there's a
0: little bit of it. Anyway, so you you can do something like the guy is running at you with uh, a knife. When he gets to you, you punch him in the head, his, he shatters, the knife flies out of his hand, and since time only moves when you move, it's fairly straightforward to catch the knife in midair and then throw it at the guy in back of him who has a gun, who then shatters. The gun flies uh, at you, you catch the gun, you rotate around, and then you shoot at another guy. It, it's the thing that gives you the best feeling of being in the Matrix as I have ever
1: played. Yeah, that sounds really compelling. I'm going to have to try that out. Definitely. And so that's going to work on the Quest, so that's good. I was going to say, from what I'd seen graphically, there's something about it that kind of reminds me of Rez. Oh, yeah, a little bit. Speaking of which, I hope that Rez is ported to the Quest. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, right now it's uh, on the PlayStation VR in addition to
0: Vive, and uh, Rift can play it. Uh, And I played it on the rift and uh the while people who played the old game didn't uh often didn't like the new level if you play it in vr it is a much much different experience and is way more compelling i think than the other levels um
1: how is the playstation vr compared to the go the rift the quest so the playstation vr i don't have one
0: um but from what I have heard, it's just basically a little bit of a step under the Vive and the Rift. It, the resolution isn't as high. The graphics aren't as powerful because the PS4 isn't as powerful. It's supposedly the most comfortable one to wear, but you can't really turn around because it uses the, the little eye camera, the PlayStation eye camera, to do the tracking of the controllers. Uh, Sony went... Nobody used the playstation move stuff but hey we can use it in vr too and so you can't really turn around um which is pretty limiting
1: they shoehorned their connect competition into something that could be used for vr the other advantage of the psvr is it has sony's support so it
0: has probably it not anymore but when it came out it definitely had the best selection of like AAA style games and supposedly resident evil on it was really good Horror, by the way, is another thing that VR does incredibly well.
1: It is it is very unsettling. I'm imagining a Five Night at Freddy's port. Yeah, I could imagine a VR game with something like that working pretty well. There's several of those. There's a, there's a number of zombie shooters. There's one called, I believe,
0: Brookhaven. Um, and in that one, you have to be very careful about how you place your shots as the zombie hordes sort of run at you. Um, because you run out of ammo pretty easily. And then there's more of a cartoonish one where, you, where you're where you killing zombies in sort of like a cartoon environment. So there's also like the, the set of demos that comes with the Rift uh, CV1 also has a dinosaur at the very end. Uh, well, there's a couple of dinosaurs. There's one that's like a raptor earlier, but at the very end, there's a T-Rex that goes through a museum. It's very fun watching people's reactions to it as it walks up to them, snarls, and then walks over their head. As you're doing it, you can sort of watch its, like, snot fly out at you.
1: <laughs> you're, you're not selling me on this.
0: <laughs> it's uh It improves the immersion. But yeah, it's, it's always fun to watch people do that. There's one person I watched do that, and they uh, literally curled up into a little
1: ball. Oh, wow. So did we want to go through uh, some of the Abrash things that he ended up talking about? Yeah, okay, let's do that. Abrash during his presentation sort of did it
0: as a retrospective of the things that he had talked about in previous Oculus connects and how things are actually coming along. And the
1: long and the short of it was things are on track, but maybe a year behind. So he was saying that, uh, 4k by 4k is how far away? He said
0: that it could be done basically right now in half dome if they wanted to. I also imagine
1: that, uh, Stuff like the actual required hardware in order to render 4K by 4K. Yeah, per eye at 90 frames per second.
0: Oh, that's the other thing about the Quest. Instead of um, 90 frames per, sec- per second like the Rift, it's 72 frames per second. Anyway, but when we get up to, to 4K by 4K per eye, there's a lot of very... It's difficult to render that fast and sort of gets into the next topic, which would be um, uh, foveated rendering. Do you, do you want to... Describe what foveated rendering is?
1: So, what foveated rendering is, it, it's based off of where you end up looking on a picture. So, for instance, if you look at a picture of mountains in a field, when you focus on one part of the picture, the rendering, the amount of uh, rendering time that's done on the image is based on where you're looking. So, for instance, if you're looking at the field in the lower right-hand corner of the screen then most of the processing is put towards that part whereas the other parts of the screen that you're not looking at have less processing yeah and in the in the presentation that Arash did
0: it was like one basically one-tenth the pixels uh in the area that was not in the fovea
1: oh it was actually less uh from what I recall it was uh one-twentieth so 95 percent of the pixels were gone
0: Then uh, if you just remove the pixels, it doesn't look quite right because there's a lot of black space. But then there's also been some research on how to fill in those pixels. And uh, Abrash was pretty happy about uh, the the more recent ability to use machine learning to estimate what those pixels should have been to get a reasonably accurate uh, reconstruction at a fairly low rendering cost.
1: See, now... um... Looking at that, what I was curious about is how good is eye tracking? Because what I could see happening is, um you remember the game Rage, you mm-hmm. know, the last thing that Carmack worked on. There was a part within Rage where if you ended up swinging around really fast, the rest of the world would end up rendering and you would see for a moment it getting, you know, really not very detailed and then becoming more detailed after a second or two. Mm-hmm. Now, I could see the illusion breaking if eye tracking isn't that good, Mm -hmm. and you're looking at one part of the screen at one moment, and then within uh, you end up looking at another part of the screen and it takes a second or even half a second in order to adjust, then I think you're gonna end up breaking the illusion. I think that has to do with if it can keep up
0: with your eyes' saccades. There's an interesting story there. The way that the human visual system works is actually really weird. Um, do you know much about this? Uh,
1: a little bit, but uh, it'd be good just for the purpose of uh, having people know. So to start off with, when you look at something, this has to do with the
0: foveated rendering as well. When you look at something, you're actually only seeing in detail a very, very tiny part of it, and uh, the rest of it is much lower detail. But it looks really fairly high detail to your brain because it effectively remembers what was there last time you your eye looked at it and when you're looking at something uh, your your eyes are actually doing these little fast tiny movements called saccades and uh, this these go like all over the place and even if you feel like you're looking at basically one part of something all the time your, your eyes are generally actually going all over the place and it takes a little bit of time for your eyes to move from one place to another and if your brain were perceiving this movement from one place to another, um, it would basically look like a giant blur. And so, so your brain doesn't um, do that. It doesn't look at it. So the, what your brain does is it actually completely shuts down your, your visual system when it's doing the saccade. And so you actually are not seeing anything at all when your eye is doing that movement, even though it looks continuous to your, your actual perception. And the the weird thing in there is not only do you not see it, that, that those images, your brain does not fill that in with what ha- happened uh, like uh, it doesn't use like the previous image like you would expect to do something like if you're making a video and just have that uh, sort of cached when you do the movement. No, no, no. Your brain goes and adjusts your perception of time. So it feels like there is no gap because your brain has adjusted your sense of time when you're doing the movement from one place to another. You, you can actually test this out for yourself by looking at like a continuously moving uh, analog watch and then like sort of looking away and looking back and the hands will actually appear to be moving at a different rate of speed than you would expect, because your brain has adjusted the time
1: in between. What period of time are you talking about when it comes to that sort of delay of your your mind turning off? Um so basically
0: your brain acts as though that time that that the 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 period in between the cicades didn't exist and it stretches it out such that uh, it feels continuous to you between those movements getting back to VR if the tracking can be as fast as your your saccades the time it takes be- to, to go from one fixed point to another fixed point if it can do the adjustment in that amount of time then it would be perfectly sufficient I think it takes about 20 milliseconds so as long as the tracking uh, can Figure out the new position and render it within twenty milliseconds. You're okay. Uh,
1: that's a pretty decent target. Although I could see there being potential drops depending on uh, what you do, what you're doing, and what kind of scene you're looking at there. So in something like this, would the actual geometry, I, the geometry of the scene, would still be within the system? It's more along the lines of just not rendering individual pixels. Uh, yeah, the geometry would stay consistent. It would be like
0: the, the path from uh, the geometry and the textures and everything to something that's actually output uh, involves a lot of steps and generally multiple passes. Part of this is applying shaders to the pixel and applying um, other sorts of little transformations. And when you don't have to do that uh, for a whole bunch of the pixels, you save the majority of the
1: rendering time. One of the things I'm curious about then is how effective is their eye tracking? Like um, what percentage of the time is the eye tracking correct? What kind of latency they have when it comes to tracking a specific eye movement?
0: Yeah. So I know that like a couple of years ago when they were talking about it, they were sort of frustrated with it um, because they were difficult to, it was harder than they would have expected to Determine where the person is looking at based off of uh, the eye tracking and it seems like they've gotten a lot farther Um, Though it seems like it works better for some people than others Which is why they still think it's a ways down the road because they need something that's effectively universal and they currently have something That's able to reliably track for like some subset of the population
1: uh, so did they give any kind of information on what criteria would make it where they can effectively track on one person and not on another? Is it criteria like eye color prescription using glasses? Like, uh- Yeah, they didn't give any information
0: about that. Hmm. Though I think a potential solution would be to have a machine learning thing set up for your eye where it tells you to look at various points and measures like where your what your eye looks like when you're told to look at various points and does that to sort of calibrate itself for tracking your eye then they could do something like use uh gans and gans are generative adversarial networks and this is something that apple used in order to do uh some of their own eye tracking for face id where they generate, because it was difficult to get enough data for actual eyes looking in different directions, uh, they had their network, they had a network set up that would generate realistic looking eyes looking in different directions that that they would then use to train their other neural network to determine which direction that the eyes are looking.
1: I remember their uh, paper they did on their website. So you could do,
0: sort of a similar thing uh, when they're doing the eye tracking with uh, Oculus uh, except that then you would input the actual individual user's eyes and then use that to start off a network that would then adversarial train another network to determine uh, where your eye is pointed.
1: Are you talking about potentially sampling all of the users who are using that specific Oculus device and then uh, uploading that information back to a server and doing training on it and then uh, incrementally improving it? Well, there's that. I mean, to start off, I would imagine that they would create
0: a network that is sort of as wide-reaching, as many samples from actual different people as possible. And then when it gets to an actual user's home, it could then use that network as uh, an inception point and um, then train the last layer based off of the actual users that are using that particular device. I mean, kind of similar to what Tesla is doing with Autopilot. Well, Autopilot is having information fed back about every person driving, um, but it isn't necessarily updating the local model. Um, Here I was talking about also updating the local model to to specialize for the, the specific people that are using the headset.
1: Oh, you're saying fix the local model on the fly as opposed to, in the case of Tesla, Tesla pushes out an update that ends up fixing. Right, um, that that integrates a whole bunch of people's data. And uh, with Tesla, you have
0: basically just a few different kinds of cars doing uh, the same kinds of input, whereas with eye tracking, you have lots of different people that have lots of different features. So you might get more benefit Mm -hmm. from personalizing, having a, a, a separate a local network where the last layer is trained specific to the person.
1: So how long of a calibration process would you end up foreseeing? Uh, If it's longer than a couple of minutes, nobody would do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of an upper bound by necessity. (laughs) Um, It's possible that they would just have like, my guess is they would try and have a network that's as good as possible and then have like an optional make this better kind of step.
1: Well, I could see it where it's one of those things where if they end up getting 90 to 95% of people Mm -hmm. pretty good from the get-go, then they're in a pretty good position. And then the remaining 5% can improve based on local calibration.
0: Right. We've seen from stuff like touch ID and face ID that people are not completely opposed to doing a little bit of setup beforehand.
1: Yeah. It's all based off of what they're getting
0: from it. Right. Or another one of the things that Abrash uh, talked about were uh, improvements in uh, display technology, lens technology, uh, including verifocal displays and uh, pancake displays and waveguides. Well, I think what he said was, was that there is a trade off between your field of view and how. This is with the pancake lenses. So, pancake lenses are a bunch of lenses basically sitting on top of each other. You can have a really fine field of view, or you could have a really thin device. And uh, what about waveguides? So, that was the one, I believe, where you could have super thin displays basically by having the signal go in one part and the uh, optical signal bounces back and forth inside the glass. With ex- uh, exiting at various points in the uh, from the glass to your eye, so you could end up having super thin display, super thin optics, with uh, out sacrificing resolution.
1: Yeah, we was talking about two hundred degree field of view. Yeah, so these these seem
0: it it seems like the way forward. Actually,
1: I was um, really intrigued by the uh, talk about focus. That uh he was one of the things that uh, Ibrash was talking about was um the idea that they can realistically simulate focus, where uh if your eye looks at one part of the image that uh the stuff in the background ends up looking out of focus mm-hmm. I take it that this doesn't actually affect um, how far near you're focusing your actual eye but it's rather just eye tracking and simulating, um, simulating the appearance of objects being uh, closer far. Yeah. That's, that's sort of the, that's sort of the impression that I
0: was getting as well um, in that it was trying to determine what your eye was focusing on and adjusting the image appropriately, but it could also be something like a light field display uh, where uh, if, the effectively the light comes in at uh, different layers. And so depending on where you're looking, it actually does have a different image that you would be seeing.
1: And see, now I find that compelling where if your actual eye needs to uh, change focus in order to see a specific object, I mean, that's, uh, that sounds incredible. Right.
0: Yeah, it, it'd be nice to do it directly in the optics, but uh, doing it in software seems more likely.
1: Right, yeah, because you're actually looking at uh, limitations of the laws of physics in this right. case. But I, I think that I think that was supposed
0: to be one of uh, the magic leaps, big things. Uh, in is that uh, it would have variable, variable distance levels, focus levels, kind of things.
1: So is that what Abrash was talking about when he was talking about verifocal displays? I th- it might have been. Um,
0: so. The Magic Leap gave the impression, but it wasn't actually that there was going to be a continuous light field. Um, but instead, they basically put, I believe, four waveguides at different levels. Palmer Lucky did a review of the Magic Leap where he discusses this and was sort of disappointed by it. Is Palmer Lucky still
1: affiliated with Oculus in any sort of way? No, he's not. Uh, but he did do a review of the Magic Leap, which is actually worth reading. How much did the Magic Leap retail for again?
0: A lot. It was like $2,000 like $2, or something, or 1500 or something. Oh my god. And it's basically the HoloLens. It would have been cool if they released it like two years ago, three years ago.
1: Well, and also uh, for a lot less, because I mean, you're only going to get hardcore enthusiasts dropping yeah. that kind of and coin. And it has sort
0: of the same sort of um, field of view restrictions as... Uh, HoloLens, it does. What is the field of view on HoloLens? It's only like 40 degrees. That's the major thing that stopped me from even trying one. I'm not going to bother with anything that's less than 90.
1: That's like uh, getting into viewfinder territory? Looking through a little window at the world.
0: It's possible that in their early prototypes that they demonstrated to people, with, because originally Magic Leap had this giant setup that's like stationary that they had people do their demos through instead of a headset. It's possible that they had more a more continuous field of view kind of thing there, um, but that wasn't practical in an actual shipping device. Or not field of view, um, focus levels. Though there's a sort of a lot of sales puffery involved with uh, Magic Leap in general. There's an image of one of their original prototypes where they had people going and looking at it, one of the fixed ones, and there's like all these uh, wires that are going into it that are glowing and stuff. And supposedly all those glowing wires did absolutely nothing. They just made it look cooler. (laughs) I think a lot of people are upset because they took a lot of venture capital that would be otherwise better spent uh, on some more promising startups, VR startups, because they took like a billion dollars in venture capital. Wow. So the the next area that Rash was talking about was improvements in uh, audio and... There's things related to the physics of audio propagation, but more interesting was having personalized uh, HRTFs, which is head-related transfer function. Do you want to give an overview of a head-related transfer function? Is
1: it's a uh, basically directional sound? I mean, for uh... well, that's
0: what the result is, but what the function is is basically a measurement of of how sound travels through your own head. Uh, when you're listening to something in the real world, some of the sound comes into your left ear and some of it goes into your right ear and some of it passes through your head to the other ear, uh, et cetera. And if you can measure how the sound physically gets into your ears, you can create a a, a function, a head, tra- uh, head relational transfer function that can be applied to the audio in the scene to give a better representation of what the audio actually sounds like
1: see now i found this fascinating not just for vr but for uh audio in general because uh i'd like to see this used on not only headphones but i mean if possible smaller earphones as well the problem being that it takes a lot of effort to create your
0: own personalized uh head transfer function
1: yeah, uh he was saying that it took a whole bunch of modeling of his ear. Uh but the end result was uh the do you want to describe the demo that it, that was given? So in the demo, um they had him sit down and the uh woman had what looked like a cassette player and uh what she would end up doing is he had headphones on and she would hit play. And uh, what he did is he ended up closing his eyes and he would end up pointing where the woman was. And at the end of the demo, it turns out that the player wasn't playing any sound at all. It was entirely coming from the headphones or earphones that he ended up having on. Right. And Abrash said that it took a
0: lot of mental effort to re- to feel comfortable with the fact that it was coming from the headphones because it felt so much like the audio was actually coming from that part of the room but even without having a personalized uh, hrtf there's there's like a good human head approximation that's done sometimes with uh, audio measurements like uh, a lot of the asmr stuff i believe is recorded with a model of an actual human head with microphones on both sides to get to approximate the, the sound coming into a real person's head uh, to make them feel more like the audio is coming like right next to their ears there's like this famous barbershop audio demonstration that demonstrates how realistic a sound can be if the sound is recorded in such a way that it, there's a something that's like a human head in between the microphones
1: where uh where would you see stuff like this? I mean you you're not saying that it's just regular people on YouTube, right? Uh it could be if you get two micro the the important thing is to have
0: uh two relatively decent microphones and you put something that's similar in density to a human head in between and you put the microphones where the humans where the the model heads ears are.
1: Now, I've seen a decent number of ASMR recordings where they have two microphones, but I don't think I've seen one where there's a actual model of a human head between them. I just know that
0: at least a couple of them were some of the audio demonstrations where they demonstrate uh, the ASMR response are recorded that way.
1: Yeah, if you find any examples, please uh, put those in the show notes. Uh, the next area where he had made predictions was haptics,
0: uh, particularly with like hand feedback. That's an area where he thought it was pretty far off, but given recent experiments, thinks maybe next 10 years is possible.
1: Now, uh, do you think the problem was uh with actual implementation within like a real product? Or do you think it's uh you know there's actual more issues that need to be solved? Because the example that they showed within the keynote was of a woman playing Jenga. Mm-hmm and, uh, you know, putting a rubber ducky on the tower and then knocking it over. Mm-hmm. But um, that looked decently compelling. It looked like, you know, wearing gloves with a whole bunches of sensors and whatnot seemed like something that would actually work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, is the problem miniaturization?
0: Since I can't actually feel what that lady was feeling, I don't know what the problems are. <laughs> it might be that, like... You, it involves like really really annoying wires or something that would be hard to get rid of or, or it's possible that if you have feedback that feels right in one way, it, it makes other stuff not feel right or whatever.
1: And also like uh, one of the things we we're talking about as well is that you'll end up having haptics where you'll feel something, but you're not going to get any kind of resistance at all.
0: Particularly if you're doing something where you're fighting with a sword, the the lack of resistance when you bang into something is a little bit ruinous of the experience.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, especially if you're having a lightsaber fight, I mean, and uh, somebody pushes against you, you're not just going to say, okay, I'm just going to push through. Though to be fair, uh,
0: lightsabers work a lot better than a regular sword was because in a lot of cases they would, they do supposedly just cut right through stuff. Oh, uh, well not another lightsaber. True. So you can have lightsaber duel, but you could use one in the game still without the duel.
1: Okay. Yeah, so it would be the type of game where you're fighting against stormtroopers. Yeah, There is a game called um,
0: Beat Saber. Have you heard of that one? No, no. Tell me about that. Beat Saber. You know of Guitar Hero where the notes fly at you? Yeah. So the way Beat Saber works is the notes are flying at you, and then you have to hit them with your lightsaber. Oh, nice. In time with the music. And it's supposedly actually a lot of fun. Uh, is this on uh, Rift? It, yeah, it's Rift and Vive can both do it. Maybe if
1: it's on the Quest, I'll give that a shot.
0: Yeah, the, I'm sure this is the graphics are not that particularly involved, so I'm sure that it'll work on the Quest.
1: With a lot of these games, it's not about necessarily having great graphics. It's about showing you something that you haven't seen before. Yeah. Um, getting back to the
0: haptics, some of the existing haptics are... They're more immersive than you would kind of expect them to be based off of what the uh, controllers can actually do. Uh, For example, one of the early Vive demos is a valve game where you're doing archery. And uh, when you grab the arrow and you sort of pull back the bow, there is a little bit of a vibration that it does that does sort of impart a feeling of uh, string resistance. And it is, surprisingly real feeling i mean it obviously doesn't feel anything like a real bow but it conveys a sense of physicality to the the virtual object that you are holding
1: well now a game like that i could see actually being ideal in that it makes you feel really really really, really strong mm-hmm. as opposed to uh having a gigantic bow and in real life and pulling it back and having it be really really hard to do yeah And similar to that is
0: one of my one of my old other favorite VR games, which is called Hollow Point, which is another uh, archery game. So the way that that one goes is you're in an arena and there's various targets uh, It starts off with cubes and it ends up with like these samurai rushing at you. But anyway, uh, when you fire at these cubes, they fire back. And so you can either try and very quickly draw another arrow to shoot the thing that they fire back at you, or you can try and dodge it. So it becomes sort of this little dance where you're firing and dodging, firing and dodging, firing and dodging. It's, and sort of similar to Super Hot, it's a very matrixy feeling. The problem with that, with the current systems, is you have this cord on you. So you can't do the super intricate movements, uh, like rolling around, like you really want to be able to do when you're playing it.
1: So I guess the Quest would be helpful
0: with a game like that. So that's another one that would make a really good Quest game uh, with without the wires. So there, uh, there is now a uh, an add-on you can get for the Vive where you can remove the wires. And you put in a little PCIe board into your machine. And it has this, I imagine, proprietary wireless communication uh, to send the display signal.
1: Yeah, I saw that. Now, uh, I could see that easily happening with the next version of the Rift.
0: I'm really, really hoping
1: they do something like that. I think that
0: uh, Oculus is too focused on mainstream to use a PCIe board, but something like having a adapter that uses Thunderbolt is seems like a very real possibility.
1: One of the things that when it came to the uh, Quest that I was hoping for was that there would actually be a separate processing box. Now, uh, I know that it's convenient not having to have something to carry around, but the compromise is the uh, CPU and GPU power that's available to it. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's what the Rift is ultimately going to end up becoming in time, is that I can see it being wireless similar to uh, what's happening with the Vive. It's just that you're going to have a whole lot of processing power available, uh, not within the actual unit itself. Right.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I hope. Um, It's unclear just how much resolution you can get up to uh, over the open wireless channels.
1: Isn't there a wireless spec for Thunderbolts? No, it doesn't look like it. It ends up jumping me into a thread and a person says, oh, use AirPlay. (laughs) Uh, yeah that is
0: totally not working
1: yeah you're not going to be having airplay on an
0: oculus no no can you imagine that like having a like a one second lag for every movement it'd be you'd be vomiting within like the first minute (laughs) vomitous rift
1: (laughs) all right so on to the next thing i'm not exactly sure what you're getting at with comfort um, one of the things that ABRASH was saying was that uh, with comfort you have to make compromises. Like for instance, uh, you can have a bigger battery, you can have more processing, etc. But it's not going to be as comfortable. And in order to have a more comfortable design, it has to. You have to end up making compromises in places. And uh, where I was going with that is that if you ended up having most of the processing off of the device itself, you can end up doing more with it. Mm -hmm. Like, you can actually have, you know, an actual brick or a cube or whatnot that actually does more of the processing, as opposed to just having it on the display itself. I believe that
0: the way that, like, was it StarTAC? Yeah, I'm not, I can't remember who actually did the headsets for uh, Star Wars Seeker of the Empire, but I believe that the way that one worked is you're essentially carrying around the device that was doing the rendering as you're walking around the area. Um, And the way that whole thing was set up is uh, you have the headset and then you have a haptic vest. um, And then you walk around this like actual, it's like a 15 ish minute, I think experience at various parts of the country that they set up. I believe they went in Anaheim Edmonton, uh, genting glendale las vegas orlando and toronto i guess you go in it's a star wars mi- little mini game and they set up an arena where if there is a physical object in the vr world there is a actual object there so you can actually sort of touch things as you go through the haptic vest means if you get shot you sort of feel it uh the setting up for the third arena makes it so if there's lava on the ground, they can have a heat vent coming out of that area so you feel the heat and uh, really becomes much more immersive. But part of that is you carry around uh, the whole computing device with you, I believe. So it sounds like there's a lot of mixed reality elements. And supposedly from the people who've tried it, it really helps a lot um, in, the, in the immersion. I, I'm, I'm sort of curious how that sort of compares to the Quest and the paintball demo.
1: Yeah. Have you seen any kind of reviews or whatnot so far? No, I only saw the one where the guy was playing
0: Superhot and he thought that it was uh, the wireless nature of it made it better than the Rift implementation. So Superhot is, it's not really a killer app, but it's a killer game for VR and wireless VR in particular. Is there anything in the Carmack talk you wanted to talk about? Did we talk about bed mode enough? Uh, Not really. We didn't really talk very much about bed mode.
1: The one thing I found interesting about Carmack's speech was how he was talking about bed mode and uh, how popular it ended up being. Now, uh, from my perspective, I can completely see that because uh, in the case of bed mode, it basically uh, simulates you being able to have a TV on the ceiling without having to actually hang one on the ceiling. For me, I'm not at the point where I could see using it until the display gets good enough. Now, if they're doing 4K by 4K per eye, then I can definitely imagine laying in bed watching a movie or watching a TV show or whatnot. You know, even if the content itself isn't in 4K, um, you're still rendering the uh, the content on an area that's smaller than the whole amount of the uh, VR headset. You're not blanketing the entire content within there within the display part itself rather in a lot of cases you're watching a uh, a virtual screen mm-hmm. within a root ru- within a virtual room that has your content there mm-hmm. and that's uh only using a smaller percentage of the uh, display itself if you do do that you
0: you can get at least 80 90 percent of the screen it's, it,
1: it ends up feeling like an absolutely massive screen that you're looking at. Yeah. And I mean, that part I find really cool. It's just, I want the detail to be there. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, it's going from my 4K OLED TV to a device that's, uh, whatever the resolution ends up being per eye, it ends up being a downgrade in that respect, and The one thing you are getting from that is the comfort of being able to lay in bed instead of, you know, being out of bed. Mm -hmm. But eventually when it's 4K per eye, you're kind of getting both in that case. Yeah.
0: I think we're a ways off from one of those, though. At least Eh. wireless.
1: Eh, Three to five years. Let's see. 4K, wireless,
0: three to five. I, I think longer than that for wireless. Maybe wired, definitely.
1: Well, the question is what uh, if your device supports it? Then, uh, you know, for instance, they were announcing, they announced that uh, they have Hulu Go Mm -hmm. within the uh, Quest. So, I mean, that's basically the VR headset would be doing the processing. Yeah. It's just uh, the Wi Fi has to be good enough. That's all. And I guess also it depends on
0: if the. Half dome or whatever ends up being 4K and wireless or not. There's a couple of other little tidbits with the Carmack talk that I just found randomly amusing. One of them was how he has been dealing with Facebook open source in that <laughs> if you want to if you want to open source something at Facebook and not jump through a whole gazillion hoops, you just call it example code, and then they'll let you do it. <laughs>
1: Imagine if it were like that. It's software. Example: 3D renderer. <laughs> now go implement your own. Yeah, I thought that was funny. I I found his candor to be really amusing. Mm-hmm. Where he, you know he would just go up on stage and talk about you know this thing I really thought was substandard and this thing I thought was great. Yeah, and uh, I'm looking at this going, well, you know, yesterday was a completely salesy yeah. type show this is why they this is why they put him on the second day by himself Uh, is this why he got cut off abruptly at an hour 30 no that that's just the
0: scheduling thing he always goes over it's just this time they're more rigid about making forcing him to stop i wonder if there's going to be any video of him in the hallway that'd be nice but there never is they usually like sits out in the hallway like talking about more stuff for like two or three more hours oh my god I guess uh, you have to actually attend Oculus Connect to get the full Carmack experience. And then there's the other little tidbit that I thought was interesting, where he noticed where he started tilting his head and everything got more clear because the artifacts that showed up when everything is aligned with the pixel grids. I thought that was a kind of interesting thing where uh, you can run into issues if your world is aligned with your eye buffers.
1: You know that I found that amusing because usually it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Within, uh, you know, I remember old school games where if there was any kind of any kind of rotation, that's where you get your aliasing. Yeah, instead of reducing the problem, it amplifies it in this case. What do you think of the native hand tracking? I mean, do you see that as something that's going to be? implemented relatively soon or do you think there's too much of a computational cost to that
0: so the thing about the native hand tracking is i'm not sure it's worth the loss of haptics so when you're in a vr app being able to touch something and have the controller vibrate is actually a pretty powerful indicator of physicality and if it just does the hand tracking you don't get that at all so there's like, if you're moving, if you're shifting a block around, like there's some puzzle games where you grab onto a block and you shift it around and it does sort of like a little mm, cement rubbing on cement vibration feel. And if you're just tracking your hand by itself, you don't get that at all. I played a little bit with, so there's the a thing called the leap motion controller, which does hand tracking and the, you can have that integrate the hand tracking into vr and i played a little bit with it and for some things it was kind of cool like bouncing something on your hand uh but for a lot of stuff it was just uh, it's sort of weird because it was not nearly as immersive as holding a physical controller and pressing a button and having the vibration go into the controller and then your hand
1: I see there being benefit of having both uh, haptics where you end up wearing some kind of glove and also native hand tracking because say for instance, if you're in a virtual space and if a person ends up signing, mm-hmm. you know, you have a deaf person within VR, it makes a whole lot more sense for somebody with their bare hands to be signing rather than forcing them to put on gloves. Yeah, that that does
0: make sense. But In addition to that, just like if you're doing a meeting or something that doesn't involve actually touching something, uh, Mm -hmm. being able to recognize the hands and what they're what they're doing.
1: Now, and also, if you're working and uh, you're pretty much typing on your keyboard, it's a lot nicer to not have to wear gloves. Thank you to our 15 trillion podcast subscribers in alpha centauri oh. and the other 15 quadrillion podcast listeners in andromeda galaxy <laughs> all right we will see you next week and uh we're looking forward to hearing back from you within the next one to two million years sounds about right please don't invade us
0: those uh patreon subscribers were very prescient Uh, in that they knew that our podcast would exist. And so they subscribed millions of viewers before our podcast existed. (laughs) If you would like to visit us at uh, ALH.fm, that's where our show show notes are going to be. Talk to you next week.